Jonathan Kay, how you doing? Quillette, tell me a little bit about Quillette and what, what does Quillette mean? So Quillette is essentially a made up word, which sounds fancy. <laughs> and well, I guess we've been around for seven years now, so it's an established word. Uh, it's mm. sort of like Politico. I mean, Politico, I don't, well, I guess Politico was a word. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's based in Australia and uh, I'm in Canada. We have one of our editors in UK, one of our editors is in the United States. So it's a truly Anglospheric, op- it's a small operation, but it covers the Anglosphere. Hmm. And it's a it's a great uh, publication that I've I've found myself reading many a time. I suppose it's sort of uh, and it's going to lead me on to my first question because I just wanted to ask about political correctness not working for anyone. It works for no one. That was your TED talk, and that's also sort of Quillette's. Uh, would it be fair to say it tends to be on a on a uh, I don't want to say anti woke. How do I say yeah. anti woke without saying anti woke? Well, we were anti woke before woke was a thing. Uh, we were we were uh, anti woke avant la lettre, as uh, <laughs> as the black turtleneck crowd might say, um, because you know Quillette was was founded. Let's see, I guess it was two thousand and fifteen, and I mean people still still talked about wokeness, but it wasn't like the common everyday subject that it is now. Um, mm. What and and also I should say that Quillette distinguishes itself. It's it's not. I wouldn't even say it's a particularly conservative publication. So when you think about people railing against wokeness often, you know, it might be in Britain, it might be like, a, I don't know the media market there, like the Daily Mail or um, um, in the United States, be the New York Post or Wall Street Journal or Fox News, uh, sort of recognizably conservative outlets. But I think most people who read Quillette will recognize it as essentially a liberal publication that's traditionally liberal, so classically liberal, you know, free speech, due process, things like that, um, but which opposes what we now call wokeness, which, you know, and one of the reasons is we don't see wokeness as particularly progressive. It tends to disadvantage people um, who don't have a lot of money, who don't have a lot of access to capital, sometimes who don't have a lot of education. Um, and so we, we tend to point out the anti-liberal aspects of wokeness um, as opposed to attacking wokeness from like a traditionally um, conservative viewpoint. This is something I was uh, talking about a little bit earlier as well. Are we seeing sort of a change from the talk of left and right towards authoritarian and lib- libertarian? Um, I mean, my so my take is that authoritarians tend to be people who feel so confident that they've won the culture war at any particular point in time that they want to lock in their advantage. So, um, you know, I'm old enough, I'm older than you, obviously, but I, like, I remember the 1980s, the, yeah, okay, this, don't, don't try and fight that one. I, <laughs> I remember the, the 1980s uh, when, you know, I, I'm from North America, so I'm Canadian, but I remember Ronald Reagan, the religious right um, attempts to say, you know, criminalize flag burning, introduce a constitutional amendment to criminalize flag burning, um, and to sort of bring more Christianity into political life. And that was essentially the right wing trying to, I wouldn't say author- authoritarian methods, but heavy handed methods to lock in what they saw as a cultural advantage. And they said, look, we're winning the cultural war now. We've got Ronald Reagan in the White House. Uh, you know, let's try and lock that in. And, you know, they would do things like they would try and get art shows canceled if they showed nudity. Uh, you know, you might remember, I don't know, Robert Maplethorpe is, you know, sort of avant-garde, 
progressive artists, um, you know, anyone who was gay or, or whatnot, it was the right wing that was acting in an, an authoritarian way because they thought they had the muscle to win the culture war at that point in time. They were the authoritarians. Now, especially in universities, activist circles, literary circles, you have progressives who feel, hey, look, we've, you know, they look around a room and they see, you know, 70%, 80%, 90% of the people in the room, it's us. Let's, let's lock out the other side. We have the muscle to do it. So authoritarians tend to be people who think that they have the muscle to change the rules of the game, to disadvantage their opponents. And that happens on both the left and right side of the spectrum. Right now it's mm -hmm. happening primarily on the left side of the spectrum, but that could, in five years from now that could change. Is it fair to to say, and I, I'm just thinking out loud here, that they tend to be rather humorless? I'm, I'm, yeah. I think of like Cinema Paradiso is my, one of my favorite films, and and they, they that was they have the cinema that everyone goes to. I suppose it's the 1950s or something, and the priests go before and they cut out all the kissing scenes from the movies, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is a bit like yeah. it's that, isn't it? Uh, yeah, there's a I think a famous scene of a a priest becoming very hot and bothered as, as, as he's watching. Uh, if it's the same film I'm thinking of, I think a a girlfriend took me to that film. I, so. I don't. I I, it's so. the sort of film that a girlfriend would have taken me to. It's, 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 it's foreign, yeah, but, it, but it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful, and like, and that the, the final scene. I don't. It doesn't ruin it for anyone watching it, but it has. It's a. It's a montage of all those kissing scenes, and it's just sort of a. You know, this this symbolism of right. the the freedom and that anti restrictiveness that I just can't. The humorless puritan pur puritanism. Pur what's the word? Uh, pure. Pur uh, Puritanism, Puritanism. Puritanism. Yeah. So look, yeah. I, you know, I mean, another another cultural example you could give is Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose, uh, both the movie and the book, where, you know, spoiler alert, the antipathy toward humor and comedy within um, like very, um, a, a very severe faction of, of, of the me medieval Catholic Church sort of guides the plot. And I... Again, I don't want to spoil it. It's a fantastic book. But the idea here is that in all zealous political or ideological movements, humor is always looked upon with suspicion because comedy is only effective if it undermines some piety, some dogma, some orthodoxy that everyone pretends to think is true, but no one actually thinks is true. So the communists were, or communist societies <laughs> tend to be very skeptical of comedy Religions tend to be very skeptical of comedy, uh, and, and for a good reason, is because comedy is inherently corrosive. It corrodes dogmas. It corrodes allegiances. Um, you know, the court jester is the person in the room who points out that beyond all the grand rhetoric that, uh, you know, kings and princes are emitting, that often they're very hypocritical or, um, you know, they're contradicting themselves. And when you point that stuff out, it tends to bring down the level of commitment and allegiance and, and prestige of the priests, you know, whether they're secular priests or whether they're uh, literary priests, woke priests, nation nationalists, uh, conservative nationalists hate humor because it tends to be directed at the guy at the top, you know, Charlie Chaplin's famous movie, uh, The Dictator. Um, and, and so, I mean, I've seen this in my life where people who I thought were very funny and would make me laugh, they would become like, like super woke or they'd go to the other side. They become like super Trump supporters or they become like super anti-vaxxers 
or they become in one case a guy i know there's a while ago he became a scientologist and as soon as mm -hmm. they go into down those rabbit holes they stop being funny and you know i say like <laughs> someone will say like oh uh, you don't want to hang out with me anymore because like um i've adopted i've become x it's like no i don't care about the x what i care about is you're not funny anymore because you can tell sometimes with people like that as soon as you start telling a joke they they start to stiffen up because they're worried your joke might go into a forbidden area and to be funny and to appreciate jokes and to make jokes, you can't worry about forbidden areas. You have to take the logic of comedy to where the logic of comedy wants to go, which tends to be toward undermining the, the dogmas, the orthodoxy that governs. It doesn't have to be a whole country. It could be a subculture. It could be a literary subculture. You know, you're on a Reddit forum with, you know, um, you're talking about gender, for instance, or race or something. And you say something off message and you know you're out like they just and they don't care if it's a joke right they in fact if it's a joke it's, it's worse because it's a if it's a joke someone might laugh and if they laugh it gives permission permission for other people to laugh and then you've lost control of the room right so sex and comedy tend to be the two things that um that all cults are very suspicious of they want to control both of those things that's so interesting i i love what you said so much i'm I, i've actually started to get excited um mm. oh is it just cut out oh no it's just cut out i've actually i've I started to get excited excited and i want to sort of sign up to your cult but calm down then, then i'll become, <laughs> I'll become a, so extremely I'm, i have a cult i have a cult of shtick i mean i yeah and i and i think my i'm not an observant jew but i think my jewish background actually helps insulates me from cults because yeah you know it's sort of like every woody allen joke which is like i hope there's an afterlife and i hope they serve good sandwiches it's like it's you know he makes a lofty statement uh, and then he brings it down by reminding you that we're just like base creatures <laughs> driven by hunger and sex. And, uh, and you know, this, this, that's the cadence of every, every Woody Allen joke. Um, and I love that. And, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, that's the function of comedy. Uh, you know, Henri Bergson wrote this fantastic essay, I think 19th century about comedy. He said like the, the, the comedic image is of, you know, the philosopher staring at the sky thinking, of great philosophical questions and then he falls into a manhole or he slips on a banana peel but the joke's only funny if the protagonist is seen to be contemplating something lofty because the idea is comedy is the thing that brings him down to earth comedy is the banana peel comedy is the manhole comedy is the reminder of the physical universe that is a rebuke to all your lofty conceits about organizing the universe into um you know neat uh, ideological constructs and and it's the same with any system of thought which is why like if you want to join my cult you just you have to do shtick you have to you have to first of all you have to laugh at my jokes that's like you don't have to wear robes or anything but like when i tell a joke i like that you just did like at least <laughs> at least a slight titter a polite humor. smile yeah that's like <laughs> well, and, and if you want to get promoted <laughs> if you want to be promoted you got to do better than that i'm afraid it's gonna have to I be know. like a fully belly laugh yeah but because I'm self-conscious now, I can only give you the smile, even if you're making me really laugh. I have Still, to only give that's enough. All I can... That'll get you yeah. a second in, second interview. You know, you'll. I've you'll... had. I've. I've got. <laughs> having grown up Jewish, I, I equate a lot of it to that as well. The, also, a lapsed Jew or whatever it might be, and the same kind of humor, and they're not taking yourself so seriously all the time. Yeah, but I'm what what you were saying before made me wonder. Then you've had friends who've gone one way, gone the other. It is. It. It feels like I could never be that way because I just always think in the in a Woody Allen way. Well, I'll be dead in whatever amount of time so right. who cares right but 
do we have it does everyone have it in them depending on the circumstances to sort of become that pious kind of person um i think so uh like i'm, I'm sure there are circumstances where i could become like that and part of the reason i've never become like that is just i'm morbidly self-aware and self-conscious so when <laughs> even when i was a kid i was doing my bar mitzvah i was like God, you know, I was like davening and I had the, the, the I, yeah. I remember thinking like, yes, if, if, if my friends from school saw me, what would it? Because I went to a Gentile school. Like, what would what they think? Like, like I wasn't ashamed, but I was like, they think this was weird. Right. Like, because I remember I went to, to their Catholic church services one day. I thought I was pretty weird. And I like, but these thoughts consume me and it's not healthy. It's a morbid self-consciousness. But that morbid self-consciousness protects you from like going whole hog into any cult, because to be in a cult. That's the thing about cult members. They never think they're in a cult. Like you never meet somebody and they say, hey, how are you mm. doing? Say, oh, pretty good. I joined a cult. Like it's always mm. like, oh, I joined this amazing movement where we like explore the limits of human potential. And then they explain it. It's like, oh, that's okay. That's a cult. Like, no, no, no. It's the furthest thing from a cult. And so self-awareness helps preserve you from that. Because even like when I'm on Twitter and, you know, if I've tweeted about the same thing for two and three days in a row, I'm kind of like, wait a sec. I'm going you know, like, do, are people reading this and they're thinking I'm obsessed with it? I better switch. You know, I better. That's why I have like, you know, a dozen subjects that I rotate um, because yeah. whenever I. And so uh, I think that's a big thing. But as an editor, I have seen people like a Quillette. Sometimes we've had people who they're disaffected progressives, they're disaffected leftists. Right. And, you know, they'll write for me and they'll say, you know, I used to be in this like theater group or I used to be um, with this NGO and we had this big woke mobbing and it was terrible. And now I've become like very alienated from that ultra woke world. And I want to write about it for you. And they write about it for me, but then like I'll follow them on social media and you'll see that they'll start to like shift more to the right and the right. And they, they keep going sometimes. And then like you check in on them a year or two later, it's like, wait a sec. You're like, just you've just changed one cult for another. Like they're in some right wing cult. It's like, why, yeah. I, as an editor, I want you to stay kind of in my zone so you can keep writing for it. But sometimes they become unusable as writers. I'm not going to name any names, obviously. And they probably think I'm, I'm, I'm worthless because, like, I'm, you know, milquetoast centrist or whatever. Hmm. But, centrist dad. Yeah, you know, both sides of them, all this crap. And hmm. they, but like for me, selfishly as an editor, I'm like, great. Now, you know, you're you're tweeting about globalists and the world economic forum and like i don't know you're listening to alex jones or whatever and now i can't use you and now i have to replace you with some other new writer who who i recruit from the disaffected fever swamps of ex-leftists and hope that that person doesn't like just keep migrating it's newtonian right a body in motion tends to stay in motion and you see yeah. that sometimes and actually sorry i'm rambling here but like george orwell noticed this that many communists are ex-catholics because he knew people that like were extremely doctrinaire communists and then they became ex ex excuse me excuse me they were ex they were extremely doctrinaire communists and 10 years before they were extremely doctrinaire catholics and he realized that what these people truly craved wasn't god it wasn't marx it was militancy they they, they had a cult-shaped hole in their brain that needed to be filled with something and it could be religion, it could be uh, politics. These days, it could be like gender stuff, or it could be Trump, or it could be vaccine stuff. Or, you know, I know, like, I know people here in Toronto, they're like, they're obsessed with masks. 
And by the way, I wore a mask. I'm not an anti-masker. I wore a mask when it was necessary. The acute phase of the COVID pandemic, uh, especially uh, Delta, I wore a mask. But then, like, you know, gradually wasn't, I don't, I didn't think it was that necessary. But I know people, it's like, I mean, I think they have sex with masks. Like, they're just, the mask <laughs> has become, like, the focal point of their existence. And it's become, yeah. like, a, a it's, it's be, I call it a face mezuzah. Because it like they put it on and it like shows that they're close to God, like that it, for them, it's their mark of enlightenment. And now that we don't need masks, they don't know what to do, like because they're for three years, that was their thing. And now they don't have a thing. So, I mean, these it's, it's very troubling for these people. I feel bad. for them. I wonder if the, do you think there's also a sense of um, it's about too much respect or people want to I've I've come to realize I've got no respect for for, for anyone uh, and I don't mean that in a fuck you kind of way I mean that in like a uh, hierarchy I don't have any respect for hierarchy yeah. when I was 13 I remember as well being in a synagogue and I was talking and some other kids my age were like shushing me and they said have some respect it's the rabbi talking and even back then I thought I've got no respect for this guy just as he should have no respect for me and I'll be polite to him I'll be polite to everyone and I'll be nice to them because I want them to like me is a selfish thing probably but respect is like a higher and a lower thing can't, can't, whereas I think I guess some people have to follow some sort of hierarchy of sorts so um Part of our evolutionary conditioning is um, adolescents, teenagers tend to challenge hierarchies. And this goes back to like, you know, simian tropes where, you know, it's this, you know, every, every person, you know, Jane Goodall, everyone who studies this in the wild, you know, you've got these like ambitious young monkeys and they, they challenge, you know, they push back. And, and as humans, there's, there's a vestige of that where as adolescents, we often go through like a rebellious stage. And it's as a parent, it's annoying, but I, I recognize that there's an evolutionary reason for this is that it's younger people pushing back, trying to make their way in the world, trying to, to create individuation, like they try and reject the idea that they're just a faceless part of the clan, that they, they want to be individuals. And so um, this, this thing where, you know, you're, you're, you're talking back in, in synagogue, like that's, it's, again, it's annoying for adults, but it's part of the process of growing up. However, sometimes people become adults and they, it's not like as a teenager, sometimes you get status, especially boys, you get status with your, your friends by being like a badass. Um, but sometimes people drift into their adult years and they're like, where's my status coming from? Where's my place in society? And to a certain extent, we live in a post-capitalist society. Like in my neighborhood, no one is that impressed with how much money you have. Like I happen to live in a nice neighborhood and I'm very lucky and it's not really about money. It tends to be more like hashtags. And if do you have the correct ideology, do you have, do you have a job that sort of connotes social justice? Like if my na my neighbor could have, you know, um, uh, you know, a driveway full of the most beautiful European cars, but if he worked for a cigarette company, I guarantee you the neighbors would regard him as like low, like low status. And so different subcultures in our society develops like these different status hierarchies and you can think of wokeness in some ways like that it's um well i'm a white person so i'm bad because i'm an oppressor however uh, i have blm hashtags and i haven't taken this mask off in two years um and i'm very anti-oppressive and i've taken 17 anti-racist workshops um and you know i work as a diversity officer for like a school board and all of these things are now visible in social media. Like 20 years ago, all that might have been invisible. It's just, it was on your CV, but no one saw your CV. And so now we're kind of like 
monkeys constantly showing each other how many bananas we have, except the bananas are more abstract. It's more like markers or virtue or something. Uh, and then, you know, other, other subcultures have their own uh, status hierarchies. But a lot of these manias that drive us crazy are essentially, I think, are, are, are hyper-educated people in a post-industrial society flailing around for some kind of status hierarchy. Because it used to be like our parents, it was all about like, make money, we're immigrants, let's make money, send our kids to college, have a decent sized house, pay off the car, uh, you know, a respectable retirement at Del Boca Vista, and that means we've made it. But for a lot of white collar, like everyone, I don't want to say everyone, I, mean, it's, I just described a very privileged lifestyle, but a lot of people in my peer group, they have that, they want something more, they want to be recognized as something extra. So they're looking for status hierarchies, which aren't based on money. It's, you know, in a way, yeah. it's sort of very, it's, it's post-materialistic, you might say, but it's post-materialistic in a way that's only accessible to people who are very privileged. Because if you don't have all those things I've just listed, like your focus is things like getting a house or, you know, paying off your student loans or, you know, do I have enough money to get married? And for those kind of people, like a lot of this hashtag stuff, like seems very, not just pretentious and pointless, but like snooty. Because again, it's a status mm. game for people who have already won the struggle for material goods. Uh, and that's why I yeah. think I say, this goes back to your question, you probably want to get rid of me by now, because I'm rambling. But <laughs> this question, like, you say, are we past left and right? And the reason I think the answer might be yes, is if I tell people if Karl Marx was around today, and he went into some university and heard the bullshit that was being promoted as like leftist, like, you know, sort of what are your pronouns and like, um, oh, you know, I, I'm doing so much emotional labor because I have to educate you about like, you know, whatever phobia was invented yesterday. Safe he would just spaces. slap everybody. He would be disgusted with everybody. He'd say, you're not proletarian. You know, you, you, this, this is just bourgeois babble. You know, this, you're just, this, <laughs> this is a status competition among exactly the kind of bourgeoisie that we need to get rid of on our society. Um, yeah, I really, I really like that um, Will Store book, The Status Game, and he, yeah. he s says a similar thing about you know the three main types of status being dominance, success, and virtue. Um, so I was just looking uh, over here because it's it's literally that book is literally like five feet from me as you say this. Wow. So he, yeah, he's just, yeah, he's great. He's great, and yeah. So that thing, I guess, suppose I suppose some people are quite dominant, and that's just how they are. And then some people are successful. So I sort of see it that way as well. Like I want to try and have success in my life, and I guess some people aren't able to do that. And then the only way to get that status is the virtue that you. Or you they're about. or they're hyper successful, and I mean, this is a common pattern too. Is like the person who has mm. hundreds of millions of dollars, but but secretly feels he or she is a fraud and and has a need to get status in another way. Um, you know, even very successful people in our society have um, inferiority complexes. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, and, and some of them become very insufferable. Some of them by sports yeah. teams, which is, you know, one way to be insufferable. But <laughs> another way is, you know, to decide that they're going to tell everybody um, how to be virtuous. And, and that's also kind of insufferable. So, um, but, but here's the thing. So we've only got we've got a few minutes left. So this is what I'm imagining that people who maybe don't disagree, uh, sorry, don't agree, are thinking and will be angrily commenting is like, maybe they're thinking, hey, I'm a woke person, and I'm not going around stopping people having sex. In fact, I'm encouraging everyone to have loads of different kinds of sex. I'm having sex right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never not had been having yeah, sex. Yeah. And, and I, I'm not doing any of these, these bad things. I'm just concerned about 
inequalities in society yeah. which do exist right so so what where does that person fit in they want to help make a change and things like that that you're describing me i'm like that um i think inequality is a huge problem in our society um one thing i tell people is like do something for your community locally like get off your community so one thing i do i didn't mean to brag about this but but i, I happen do. to work i work at a food bank once a week you know um and i i my wife hates it because I come back and I say it's the best part of my week because I, I work, I do a four hour shift at the food bank. Uh, I'm in part of the, I'm handle the bread station. So there's, there's five stations and I organize and I, I give out bread to people who there's like a vegetable station anyway. And it's amazing. It's like everyone's smiling. I, I love my coworkers. We're all there because we want to be, we're volunteers. Um, I love that I'm doing something tangible to help people. Like we all know what you do with bread. You eat it, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what the skin color is. Some people I serve, they don't speak English, but they smile. They'll point to the bread like we have like a dozen. Some guys have no teeth and I keep soft bread for them or um, there's like, I won't go into all the details, but it's, I love doing it because it helps create a connection with society. There's no arguments. There's no pronouns. Um, there's no bullshit. And, and I'm very, like I, I'm privileged to be on one side of the, that table instead of the other because, you know, I'm able to give out bread rather than, than, than I, I need it. But when I do that, I feel like I enter the state beyond politics because it's local, it's concrete. So much of virtue signaling now is about projecting symbols, you know, hashtags, words, pronouns, all this stuff. Whatever you think about them, they're symbols. They're detached from the human condition. When you work with other people in a philanthropic way, and I'm sorry it took me so long and late to figure this out, you move in an area beyond symbols and, and that's our brain. We have some human brains are good at symbolic manipulation, but it's not really what we crave. We crave the connection that is, is on a more um, primal level than symbols. And, and so I would urge if you're listening to this, you want to fight income inequality and you want to prove that you're woke, that you're not woke, but that, you know, you care about your fellow human being, find something local to do. That has nothing to do with yeah. politics. That's just about helping people. And that to me has, yeah. that's medicated me in that way. It's been very fulfilling. I I, I think it's also just a per, my, my own personal thing. I think I think it's good to acknowledge that there's some selfishness in it. Some like, it makes me feel good. So great, 100%. because I'm some yeah. higher purpose yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I used to live with someone just before we, we, we go. I used to live with a woke person. And this is what put me off being that way. Because I was young myself when I was living with this. You know, I was in my early 20s. And uh, she used to always talk about being, wanted to be a human rights lawyer. And she was going to help all the Bolivians because she had like descendants from Bolivia and she's going to do all that. And I used to, it was her house we lived in because she was multimillionaire from her parents and stuff like that. And I used to do all the tidying up and cleaning up and stuff. I was renting a room in, the, in her house uh, and she never did her turns. And she'd sit there while she entertained friends of hers. And she yeah. used to say to them all, just like, oh, God, well, Andrew's, you know, he's doing the cleaning up and stuff, but I care about the Bolivians as if she had some higher purpose. She but never you know, did go and help Bolivians. And you know what? There's symbolism there because Simon Bolivar after whom Bolivia is named, was himself essentially a Spanish-descended aristocrat who was pure-blooded, and he did a lot to further Latin American political independence. But at the end of the day, the guy was a landowning aristocrat. And people, they talked to me about Simon Bolivar as like, you know, and questions of indigeneity. And so I Simon Bolivar was... He had many servants uh <laughs> and it's he's, he's gonna be cancelled well you know what uh you should get him on the show uh because <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, yeah. He has a lot to answer for. <laughs> he'll be no, he'll he, be on. God, he, he's, yeah, Simon Bolivar would be good. <laughs> he, he's, but, but but you know what? He's a guy, obviously, he's hundreds of years ago, but he's like all of us. There's some good and some bad. And even, you know, your woke roommate, probably some good and some bad, right? Uh, yeah. And th that, this is what I hate about cancel culture is cancel culture sorts people into good and bad categories with very few exceptions. I mean, there are some exceptions. It was some of history's greatest monsters, but most of us are a mixed bag. Uh, we, you yeah. know, I come on a show like this. I try, try and progress, project my good side. Uh, but your roommate, Bolivar, you were a mix of good and bad. And, and the, the challenge in life is bringing out the good parts um, and rolling our eyes at the bad parts in others without canceling them. That, that to me is the antidote to wokeness. We should talk more sometime. Um, but let me let, let us know where do you want people to go and like find you know Quillette or where else to find your stuff. Oh, so uh, if they on Twitter, I'm at John K. It's J O N K A Y, six letters. Uh, and then if you go there, I have uh, one of these link tree things in my link, so it, it'll send you a Quillette, which is just Q U I double L E double T E. It'll take you to the podcast. I'm very proud of the Quillette podcast. We had a great episode this week. Um, so. Yeah, um, but the easiest way is just go to my Twitter account and um, uh, again, J-O-N-K-A-Y. I've just followed you myself. I encourage right. everybody else to please support our wonderful yeah. guest, Kaching Kaching. Jonathan, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. I don't know how to bust you off of here because I don't have the tools or anything, but 